Welcome back to Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. After a slow start, delegates to the 26th UN Climate Change Conference of the Parties, or COP26, found themselves in an upswing. In short, there's hope. Even the reps from Greenpeace seemed happy, and that's no easy feat. The question on everyone's lips now is, what's next? Will the world go back to business as usual, consume at will, and climate be damned? Or this time around, has the prospect for change wiggled its way into the crevices of human complacency? This battle is far from won. And on the front lines where change really matters, countries must now contend with how to practically meet those carbon emission obligations. This puts the developing world in a bit of a pickle. For many, obligations to their own people rival commitments to climate. And in burgeoning democracies, leaders elected to improve infrastructure, provide health care, and create jobs won't last the political season if they don't deliver. It's complicated, but that's why Jeff Delman is here with me this episode to explain. Jeff is a Singapore-based senior public-private partnership specialist at the World Bank. Before we hear from him, a few words about our sponsor, Quilt AI, a mission-first technology company that helps large organizations use the internet more purposefully. It's looking to reverse fractures in society and generate empathy while helping organizations understand their consumers and beneficiaries much better. They give time and money to causes they care about and in service to people and planet. Inside Asia is pleased to be associated with Quilt AI. For more information, do check them out at quilt.ai. Jeff Delman, thank you for joining us on Inside Asia. As we uh, emerge from the COP26 discussions back in Glasgow, Scotland, lots of, of ideas were bandied about in terms of what it's really going to take in order to change the pattern and the trajectory of carbon emissions. What would you say, uh, or what has some of your, your analysis shown with respect to anticipated carbon emissions and its impact across the Asia region? Uh, thanks, Steve. I mean, this is a super interesting. These are very interesting times. Hmm. Going back to the Chinese saying, um, you know, fantastic time to be in the middle of all of this energy and drive and focus on climate change and a desire to, to make the world a better place, which is fantastic. Um, the mountain is very steep, and we've got a lot, a lot of work to do. And you can see that in you know, the G20 meetings in Rome and in COP26, and the expectations are massive. Um, and also realizing that as these leaders make these statements, even if they say everything we want them to say, which is highly unlikely, but even if they say everything we want them to say, that's just the beginning. Hmm. Then the hard work starts. And we're all going to have to get, roll our sleeves up and, and get digging into this. Um, I mean, just looking around East Asia, there's, there's such a, a, a massive challenge. China is now plateauing in their GHG emissions, which is fantastic. Um, but you've still got countries, I mean, like Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, big, important countries, very populous countries, um, where those emissions are still increasing. Mm. Um, and, and, and they're growing so rapidly that as they grow, those emissions grow with them. And that growth, you know, the, there's an element of those emissions that are, that are fueling the growth and the growth is fueling those emissions. Helping them turn that around is a, a huge task. And from a development perspective, it's unfortunate timing for these uh, Southeast Asia markets, isn't it? Uh, they, they're just coming into their own, and all of a sudden, the world's turning around and saying, you'll have to do it differently. W what does that entail, Jeff? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, 
it's tough. These are countries um, where the, the infrastructure gap, the investment gap in their infrastructure capital is um, way below where it needs to be, right? To, to match their growth, but also to achieve the economic growth that we want them to achieve in order to improve quality of life. And it, you know, that those investments are so important. And now we're asking them to divert some of those investments to reducing emissions mm. and to addressing climate change and not just respond and reduce emissions, but also adapt to what climate change is going to do to their countries. Um, and so already they were stretching the public and private purses, right? Bringing as much private capital as possible to develop this infrastructure. Now we're asking them to increase those investments significantly. Um, not to mention, of course, COVID. And COVID comes along and now debt levels are even higher. The need for public spending is higher, especially in, in healthcare and, and economic development. Um, you know, this is, these, are, these are difficult, difficult asks. There, there, there seems to be a mismatch in the rhetoric. On the one hand, uh, countries around the world are making pledges to reduce emissions, but then um, on drawing boards back in government offices, they're talking about increasing uh, coal-fired plants, use of fossil fuels, uh, and, and therefore, there is an apparent gap which is emerging. Um, is this because uh, governments are stuck between a rock and a hard place. They, they need to provide for their populations. At the same time, they want to be good public citizens. And how will this, uh, how will this uh, play out? <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure my crystal ball is that crystal, but um, <laughs> you know, this is, it's tough. Like, like you say, you're, you're a government, you need to deliver for your citizens. If you don't deliver enough electricity, then industry will not grow. If industry does not grow, people don't have jobs. People don't have jobs. They can't afford healthcare. They can't afford you know, quality of life. Uh, and, then, and by not buying, they're not helping the economy grow. It's a super difficult, vicious circle. For many of these countries, coal is what they know. Some of them are, are shifting into gas. And the, you know, most of the world is telling them gas is not good enough. You need to go past, go past that and move into renewables and move more and more into renewables. Um, so it's a tricky situation, even worse for those countries that produce coal. And these same countries that produce coal, we've been relying on them for years, decades, to fuel um, the energy to, um, production industry across the region. Now we're telling them to shut down these massive industries and lay all these people off. Uh, and that's tricky it's not it's not that this is oh i didn't know i mean we have been having these conversations for 15 20 years on the, the dangers and concerns around fossil fuels it doesn't mean that you shut down your your mines or or stop drilling for oil but it does mean that change ultimately is coming have many of these producers of of, of coal or fossil fuels or other or sorts been caught off guard or are they simply just unprepared are unwilling to make the adjustments. You say we've known about this for a long time, which is absolutely true. We've been talking about it for a long time, but don't forget how long we knew that cigarettes were bad for you. Mm. And it was only really, you know, 30 years after we realized that, that we got serious about it. And to be honest, three, four years ago, uh, as the World Bank, when we go in and, and, uh, and talk to governments about investments, telling them about our environmental um, requirements 
is always a difficult part of that conversation because it's expensive, it's burdensome, it's, you know, we want them to do a lot to deliver those environmental requirements. And our friends at the IFC, which is our sister organization that finances um, uh, the private sector for development, they have those same conversations. Any private company that wants to make these investments has to follow their ESG requirements. Now we're very popular for that because all of a sudden the last three, four years, this has become business as usual. This is what we have to do to get financing, what we have to do to take the step forward. Um, so, I mean, you're right that we've known about it for a long time, but we haven't been serious about it for a long time, just to be honest. In other words, the financial mechanisms or rates haven't been available to allow people to think about the transition. Is that what you mean? I would say the pressure hasn't been enough. Okay. So when governments think about, let's build some more coal-fired power plants, somewhere in their head, they're realizing, okay, environmentally, this is not a good thing, but man, I could get cheap technology from country A, and man, I could get cheap financing from country B, let's go for it. And it's only the last couple of years that that financing has started to dry up, that the mm. countries providing the technology have started to pull back. And, and, but even then, we're still seeing the last gasps of that universe, where some of the big companies come in, countries come in and wanting to invest in thermal power generation. And so these, you know, you've got these developing countries who five years ago, we were coming knocking on, not we as the World Bank, but, you know, the developed world was coming knocking on the door saying, hey, let us invest in your thermal power plants. Now, all of a sudden, we're saying, all right, shut all those down. It's time to move on. Mm. It's been ironic, isn't it? Because uh, in many ways, those expectations of support and financing, whether from China or multilateral uh, lending institutions, was all there for perhaps the wrong projects. Why isn't the same offer on par for renewable? What, 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 what is, because if you look at the price point on renewable, uh, oftentimes it's being argued that it's arriving at parity. Isn't that a good thing? And therefore, shouldn't it be able to toggle rel relatively effectively? Oh, it's, it's absolutely a good thing. And it's, mm. and it, and it's definitely shifting, right? Okay. Those same com com countries you know, uh, who 10, 5, 10 years ago would have been really providing a lot of opportunity to invest in these thermal power generation are now sh shifting and helping countries okay. develop renewables. That's all fantastic. But I mean, it's a bit like, um, you know, somebody buys a, a, a beautiful new uh, Lamborghini that's run on petrol and they, they spend all their money and they buy this Lamborghini and this is what they need. And so they bought the Lamborghini and now we're going and saying, put the Lamborghini in the garage. You need this Prius. Mm. And we may be right, right? This is the right thing to do and it's the right way to go, but they've spent all their money on the Lamborghini. And now we're telling them to shift to the Prius. Um, so I, not, that, not that we shouldn't keep pushing and we should, but I think there is a big role for the developed world in reaching out to the developing world, understand where they're coming from, be sensitive to where they're coming from and provide them the support that, to, to help them make that transition. Yeah, facts are facts, but this must be breeding levels of resentment that are largely, you know, um, undetected or or, or, or subtle. Uh, in other words, who the hell are you to tell me, you know, United Nations or, or U.S. Or, or Europe what to do? You've had your run. It's our time. Um, that that can't go over well, uh, particularly for in, in markets that have been largely uh, come from histories of colonization. 
uh, they, they've broken away from that over the last 50, 60 years. Now they're being told once again, you know, against their, their will that um, you must listen to us. That can't go down well. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. If I were, uh, I have teenage kids. I, I get this response all the time, you know, mm. that frustration. And it, it's got to be massively frustrating. Mm. And we followed everything that you wanted us to do. We've done all these great things. And now we're being told that we've done it all wrong and we need to do something completely different. Um, and then, um, by the way, you need the developing world needs to borrow even more money from the developed world to make this happen. And that's got to be very frustrating as well. And, and as you know, the World Bank's very focused on or is, is working very closely with countries uh, facing that trap, massive indebtedness in a lot of developing countries. And then on top of this heavy debt they've got, they're being asked to change, to transition their technology for energy production and to do all this emission reduction. Um, that's hugely frustrating. Well, that, that, that's one factor. But then, of course, there's the big existential question, which is if East Asia does nothing, what are the climate implications for them? Well, what is at stake for, for East Asia if they do nothing or if they don't transition uh, fast enough? Yeah, so I, I mean, as you know, climate change is not about one region doing something or one set of countries doing something. And if only the developed world works on this topic, it's not going to make a difference. It's not mm -hmm. going to make the difference that we need. Everybody has to work together. But that's a really difficult, like you said, existential question. I don't see it. I don't understand that. I'm in my country. We don't have much money. And you're asking me to buy into this global initiative. Um, and that's tricky. But I mean, don't forget, East Asia is a huge amount of coastal uh, property here, right, which is fabulous for us. Um, but also massively challenging for those governments. If we have this two degree change, if as we see the sea levels rise, um, you've got these enormous archipelagic countries like Indonesia and like the Philippines, um, a huge number of islands. The, the calculation is if this two degree world is achieved, this two degree increase is, is it, is, uh, happens, um, then we're going to see another hundred plus million people in East Asia, exposed, exposed to coastal flooding. We're going to see a massive part of the population that's going to be exposed to the risks of sea rises, of flooding, etc. cetera, um, not to mention fishing stocks, not to mention reduction of arable lands, um, anything that comes into uh, the, the deltas and the coastal plains. All that arable land is under threat, and not to mention the population of these island nations, that, which will disappear. Right. So massive population dislocation, um, mass migrations, uh, economic devastation. Uh, if so much of the dependencies is on on land and on ocean uh, for these communities living across Southeast Asia, uh, you would think those would be motivators in and of themselves. Uh, yet again, we're back to primarily democratically led governments who have near term objectives and therefore may not see the advantage on making long-term plays when they're not going to be around. Is that being overly cynical? No, I think, I mean, it's not even that. It's globally. It's not just people yeah. here, right? right? I mean, think of people back in the U.S. and in Europe, and there are a lot of people who, even if they believe the science, and, and that's not necessarily the whole population, though even those who believe the science wonder you know, is this a really, is this worth the investment? Is it worth the effort? And I have a lot of those conversations 
um, with people in various conferences and things around the region. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I try to help them understand that we are where we are. This mm-hmm. is your new reality. And not just that, but it's not just doom and gloom, but this is our new world. Get on board and get into it. There are opportunities here. There are huge opportunities, economic yeah. opportunities, business opportunities. Let's dive into this and go for it and ride this wave. Yeah, I've, I've heard this. I'm, I'm hearing this repeatedly, that it's not just risk management. It's it's really grasping hold of uh, the new economic and nature-based opportunities that come from this. I think people have seen, at least in renewable energies, now it's become fashionable <laughs> to, to go with renewables because all of a sudden it's economically viable and also it opens up and creates new innovative jobs and new innovative industries. So they're seeing, we have examples to show that if we do the same with agriculture or manufacturing, or supply chains, we can get uh, an equal upside, but it's going to take time and investment. And of course, you've got to get out of your comfort zone, right? Absolutely. And so in, in the region, as we move toward more toward renewable energy, the countries that move early will have that capacity. Mm-hmm. Their companies will be able to shift to that. They'll be able to produce solar panels and turbines and all of those different things. They'll have their people will get these skills. They'll be able to run around the region and sell those skills. Mm. In, in our friends in Indonesia are doing this fantastic mangrove project where they're replanting and you know it's uh, afforestation, reforestation of mangrove around the coastal areas in Indonesia, massive investment. That's going to be great from an environmental perspective and a, an emissions perspective, mm. but also huge for, for fish stocks, huge for coastal erosion, huge for pollutants into the sea. Um, because of the runoff from the land, the impact for in Indonesia on the economic and business side is going to be great, well outstripping the uh, the emissions reduction. And Jeff, who's paying for that? Well, it, so that that World Bank is in there. There are a bunch of people supporting them on this, and so there's a certain amount of of developed country money supporting this. But this is very much an Indonesian government drive. Mm-hmm. They're putting their money on the table. So on the one hand, I hear you say climate change is a global issue. Um, on the other hand, if we don't align globally, then the ramifications in places like Asia will be some of the most severe. Um, that leaves us with the question, what can be done regionally now uh, to coordinate a frontal attack on carbon emissions? Yeah, and like you, I, th- I like your image, frontal attack, and it, and it really <laughs> is almost a war footing. Right, mm. it's, and it's not just about one. And just like any war, it's not about one way of attacking or one battle or one battalion. It's about everyone working together and pushing in the same direction. Um, and so, I think you know, there's some really exciting stuff that we are doing and will do and will continue to do in the region. And there's much more. And, and one obvious is moving from discrete investments to programmatic investments to transformational investments. Mm. Easier said than done. But we've had we've had a lot of really good early successes in these discrete pieces. So the Indonesia mangrove project is a really good example, and some, that's not the only one they're doing. They've got a, a bunch of other reforestation around the region. We've got some really great examples of that, and the impacts there can be huge. the The just energy transition is going to be a tricky one, but super important, and that is helping countries move away from coal in particular, but also you know gas generation of electricity. The coal industry is a tricky one. You've got so many people relying on coal, not just for power generation, but also for industrial purposes, for home heating and that kind of stuff. Um, how, do we, how do we help them shift? 
And then you've got huge industries built around pulling that coal out of the ground, transporting it, uh, processing it. Um, how do we help them shift away from that as an industry? Um, and it, you know, again, if you think about the developed countries, as we moved away from coal as really the bedrock of of some of our our regions, um, you know, you think of the 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 West Virginia and the U.S. You think of Wales and and the U.K. and England. Um, it was it was tough. That was difficult, difficult. But we've learned a lot of good lessons from that. Took decades too, didn't it? Uh, it took decades. It took a lot of, and we're now asking these countries to do so very quickly. Mm. Uh, but I think if again, if we can all throw our weight behind this, all provide support to them, to help them tease out the challenges, to create new, bring in new industries for new employment, to do new things. What, what do you do with this land once it's exposed? The methane that's coming out of the ground, et cetera. I think there, there's a lot we can do, but um, you know, we'll, we'll need to do it. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's a fair analogy or not, but it takes me back to the mid-1990s um, and telecommunications where there were very few landlines in place across uh, large parts of developing Asia. Um, and as a result, um, so much no money had been spent and therefore mobile technology came into play. And literally within two or three years, you had uh, coverage that, that you know, went to some of the most remote parts of, of Asia. Um, it, lep- it, it was a leapfrogging move in order to get Asia up to speed with with its telecommunications and and broadcasting and media infrastructure, it, it was good for everybody. Everyone benefited, right? There were new licenses, there were new services, there were new models created. There was like an energizing of business. All of a sudden, it wasn't a backwater. Asia Pacific became front and center. Could we see, or is this a similar opportunity with energy transition? Could we see an opportunity for, for countries and, and, and private sector to get on board with this, make the transition to leapfrog so that, in fact, the energy infrastructure in this part of the world could actually override or, or, or surpass what we're seeing in other parts of the Western world? I think that's a real. I really like that image, actually, and and obviously, laying fiber cable is much cheaper than energy transition or a lot of the carbon emissions reductions that we're looking at. But mm. I really like that image. Um, I, I think the the carbon trading is going to be a huge opportunity mm. and create exactly these kind of incentives when climate and green investment, when emissions reductions become a business line become a hot business line, an exciting business line. People are diving into this to make this work because not only is it exciting and they're going to change the world, but they're also going to make some money out of this. Could you, could you walk the listeners through carbon trading as a concept? Just, 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 just 101. Sure, absolutely. So um, some activities create carbon emissions. Others, other activities create much less or absorb carbon emissions. Sometime, and we want those people who are involved in activities that generate carbon emissions to reduce those carbon emissions as much as possible, right? Uh, and obviously, there, there are limits to that. There is a, there's a transition period to that. It's going to take time. As we go through time and as technology improves, we'll be able to reduce those emissions more and more. But we also want to reward those people who, um, who do things that either absorb emissions or are low-emitting. So, for instance, if you want to build a solar power plant and you want to generate electricity with solar power, that's much better than someone that wants to build a carbon you know, uh, using coal-fired power plant. So you're credited um, for that. 
So there are a bunch of different ways of doing it, but mm. a simple way of two simple ways. One is you tell the coal-fired power plant, you can only emit X. And if you emit X plus five or X plus 10, you will be penalized. Mm. And the amount of that penalty is serious. And But you can go over to your neighbor who's got this solar power plant and they are given X, but they only generate X minus five. Mm-hmm. You can buy that minus five and offset it against your X plus five. Mm. And you pay the difference. And if my penalty for that plus five is high enough, then it makes it very financially viable for the solar plant to sell me the credits. And in the same way you could do it with a tax as well. You could say, if you emit over X, you will be taxed, Mm. but you buy the reduction, the lower emissions or the reduction from this other group. And that way you transfer capital from dirty industries to clean industries, creating an incentive for people to invest in clean industries. Okay. And then there's also the investment in carbon capture projects, which could be reforestation or mangroves. Could you explain that? Yeah. So some projects actually absorb carbon mm. out of the atmosphere. There are technologies that do this, but tr- you know, trees are a nice simple one. Mm. Plant a forest, certain trees absorb more kinds of carbon, others um, absorb less, and they absorb different amounts over their lives. So as you plant the forest, first couple of years, not so much. Later on, they absorb more and more. So the trick of those kind of nature-based solutions is convincing countries to set land aside where it will not be developed. And so not only do you have to plant the trees today, but you got to leave them there and you're not going to chop them down because as soon as you chop them down and burn them, they go back up into the atmosphere. Right. And you've seen this in Brazil, right? All these people that invested in bought carbon credits from huge swaths of forest. And then there was a forest fire. And now those trees have released the carbon back up into the air, the carbon reduction. I, I should have mentioned when talking about carbon trading, there's another piece of this which is voluntary markets. And there are some companies, even though they're not required to reduce, so the same coal-fired power plant that's doing X plus five, there's no X. Nobody's telling them that they can only do X, but they think they should only be doing X. They don't want to be doing X plus five. And so they buy voluntarily credits from other projects. And they're doing that- offset. They're doing that because reputationally, they believe that that's their obligation and they're looking to win stakeholder support, or they're doing it because their board is directing them, or what, what, is the, what is the reason or the motivation for them to volunteer? All of the above. Okay. So it's, 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 uh, it's shareholders that are pushy. It's uh, a public and consumers who are pushy, and consumers are very powerful in these topics. It's companies that want to do the right thing. It's wanting to have good marketing. There are a lot of reasons why companies do this, but it's actually a, a big market and it's, mm. and it's growing. Um, and it's a very exciting one. Um, and, and I see in terms of the carbon credit concept, it's clear and you've described it really well. Of course, now we have the problem of the price. Who sets mm. the price? And who, how do we have agreements on you know, how to measure that carbon and award it accordingly? Yep. And who's going to monitor it? Who's going to verify it? How do you calculate it? How, what contracts do you issue for it? And as each country develops its own system, and, and coming out of COP26, what we're out of, you know, out of all of this goodwill and all these good statements, what we're hoping is that countries around the world start developing more and more of these regulated, this compliance, this required market mm. for emissions reduction. 
and then this market will explode. But the problem is that every country, I mean, at the moment, there's the EU mechanism, the, the Korean mechanism, the California mechanism. There are a lot of trading systems, um, but that uh, apply different rules and different dynamics and different restrictions and different regulatory functions. And so it's difficult to find your way through. Imagine what it's going to be like when you've got 40 or 50 of those around the world, each one evolving in its own manner and its own tempo. Well, the way you describe it sounds to me very much like the ES journey, ESG journey we've been on, where it started with dozens of standards and over three, four, five years, it started to consolidate. Um, and there's closer agreement in terms of what those standards to measure ESG looks like. So again, we're talking about a, a, yet another process that needs to take place. But of course, Jeff, we're in this situation where uh, time is of the essence. Um, yeah. what, what do we do in the meantime? Yeah, so, so we're, um, it, it, it's, it's a tricky process. I think you're right. This is going to evolve very naturally to a more cohesive approach as people learn from each other, as they work together, as they realize it's just cheaper and easier to do it that way. Um, and so these different systems will work together. And hopefully this voluntary market grows alongside these other markets. And there are a lot of issues about how do you offset between voluntary and compliance and how do they work together? But hopefully we don't take the air out of this very exciting voluntary market that's grown up. Um, but also just take a second to imagine you're in a developing country and you're looking out at this array of different systems that's happened that, that are developing out there. And we would love to see developing countries benefit from these trading mechanisms that are being developed. And so when the Europeans want to buy credits, we would like to see them come to Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, Laos, and come and buy credits here so that you've got a movement of capital, again, from developed countries to developing countries. But that requires these developing countries to look out at this array of different uh, systems and markets and figure out how to develop their projects in a way that generates credits all across these things. And not only that, but once you've developed the credits and you're ready to sell them, most of these countries, if I want to, um, you know, I want to do some mangrove uh, re reforestation, I, um, I may not have the money. Like you said, at the moment, public money is scarce. Private money is out there, but difficult to get in developing countries. Yeah. How do I borrow against these future credits to make this happen? Mm. Um, so it's a it's a tricky world, but I think there's some really exciting opportunities. And, and and it seems to me that includes a role for the World Bank and IFCC and others to guarantee a rate and then get support from the private banks as well. Is that right? So we've got a bunch of different, uh, and as you can imagine, we've got different teams doing all mm. kinds of different fun stuff in this space and and helping to create the global markets, setting up a, a benchmarking system. So you've got all these different groups creating these credits, how do you stop people from double dipping, <laughs> from taking the same forestry project and selling it in Europe and Canada and Australia and California, et cetera? Mm. Um, and so we're, we're, we're setting up a marketplace that will allow everybody to come, a warehouse will allow everybody to register, of course, using exciting blockchain technology um, to allow them to register their, their credits there so that you know the buyer knows they're not getting they're not being resold stuff that are, has already been sold to somebody else. Um, uh, and we're, we're providing all of this support, helping governments think about their own trading systems, setting up their own systems in order to reach out and connect with that. Um, 
And then we're, we're looking also at uh, pricing, as you said, and pricing is tricky. Um, at the moment, there are a lot of people running around to these developing countries saying, sell me your credits, sell, give me your projects. I will pay you $5 a ton, $10 a ton. Now, on the voluntary markets, that's a reasonable price. But on the regulated markets, that's not a great price. And looking forward, assuming we achieve as much out of COP26 as we hope, um, these prices are going to go up dramatically. And their calculations anywhere between $50 to $100 a ton. That's kind of a sensible range. There are views that 70 75 is really where we need to be in order to create the right incentives to push people in the right direction to really make this into an industry. Um, and so governments are really nervous about agreeing to anything at the moment until they understand that market better. So yeah, one they're... Of the, oh, sorry, Jeff, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, I mean, yeah. one of the really interesting pieces is um, a growing move in the World Bank and some of the trust funds that we have of giving governments a floor and saying, look, you do your project, you build it out. We promise mm. to buy your credit at $10 a ton, just an example. Yeah, a minimum. I mean, and each project yeah. does it, mm. right? At a minimum. If you can get 12, go for it. Go get your 12, go get your 15, get your 20. Mm. We're there as a backup, right? Mm. And, and so, uh, and, and that gives the government a nice solid place to start from. Um, I think we'll also see a lot of groups coming together and saying, well, let, we'll buy your credits. We'll promise you it's a 15, 20, and anything we get above 20, we'll split the difference with you or some mm. sharing of the upside, right? So that you know, there's a certain amount of risk that's taken by the buyer, but there's also a sharing of the upside with, with the government or with the, with the, the asset owner in the country so that you don't have this nervousness about releasing these credits into the market. Yeah, it's really well described, and and but it also conjures up these um I, these these possibilities of exploitation. You've got somebody who's a lot more sophisticated, walks in, you know, basically throws down an offer and walks away and sells it for two or three times as much. We're now then reinforcing reinforcing that colonial notion. You're doing it again, right? So getting this right now is very, very important. And educating and making sure that the governments have the right people in place in order to monitor and in order to stay ahead of this game is just as essential. We haven't even talked about the hedge funds that are going to get involved in this, right? And they're going to start to, to look to exploit these, these, uh, these gaps. So it, 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 is, it is messy to such a large degree, but so exciting and that it could be this new mechanism for driving change in ways the world has never seen. Absolutely. So that's um, one thing that I'm working on personally, which I'm really excited about, um, is putting together basically a, a war chest, a pot of money that we can go around to developing countries, use this money to bring in data about all the different markets that are happening all over the world, bring all this information and Pre present it to developing countries, then bring them the capacity to improve their own internal systems so they're ready to go, right? They're ready to jump on this thing when it gets there. Looking at their projects, helping them identify which ones will generate credits that are going to sell best, yeah. right? And some countries, especially voluntary markets like nature-based, some others are going to like, great, so we'll put all this stuff together, we'll get these projects together, now let's help you engage with the market because the communication with the market at the moment is, is all over the place. Mm. You've got everybody talking and there's some people that are, there are a lot of cowboys out there trying to sell, you know, buy cheap and sell well, the usual. 
um, and a lot of good people, but those good people get drowned out by the cowboys. So help them have real conversations, raise real issues so that we know what the challenges are yeah. and then set up mechanisms to borrow against those credits. So you put all of this resource, you get the, the developing countries become confident. And once they become confident, they can become real partners with buyers. Mm, excellent. I did hear you say this is a personal project and this is Jeff Delman's pot of money. Did I, did I misinterpret that? Because I'm, I'm coming to you because I got a few ideas myself. Yeah. I am, I am I'm very humbly um, <laughs> proud to be involved in a team within the World Bank that's developing this as a concept. And uh, it's very, very exciting though. Well, Jeff, as this evolves, please come back to the program. Let's discuss this further, wonderfully described and explained uh, to our listeners. Do appreciate that. And thanks for all the good work. Right, thanks, Steve. Great to be here. That was my conversation with Jeff Delman, Senior Public-Private Partnership Specialist at the World Bank. As I'm writing this, UN climate talks are concluding. In the final hours, a deal was cut to tackle emissions, but resistance remains. Nowhere more so than among coal-dependent nations like India, China, and Indonesia. These countries argue that rich nations whose historical emissions are largely responsible for warming the planet should bear some financial responsibility in helping them transition away from coal and towards renewables. $100 billion in climate funding has been promised, but precisely how, when, and in what way funds will be raised and deployed is still an open question. Meanwhile, the appetite for energy continues apace. World Bank research shows that East Asia represents nearly 57% of global coal consumption, 52% of which comes from China alone. That makes coal consumption in Vietnam, Indonesia, and the Philippines look like a rounding error. The real issue is trajectory. China is making major headway in reducing its coal dependency. The rest of developing Asia isn't doing so well. Demand for fossil fuels is rising. COP26 puts the ganache on that. All of a sudden, low-income markets are under pressure to do more and consume less. I'm of two minds here. On the one hand, I get it. People need and deserve access to electricity and the amenities that come with it. Whether or not a community has lighting, for instance, determines access to information, quality of health care, and education for all. Moreover, democracies tend to flourish when the basic needs of its people are met. On the other hand, as pointed out in my discussion with Jeff, it's not like renewable energy is a new idea. Many European countries with a lot less annual sunlight than East Asia began offering subsidies and feed-in tariffs as early as 1990. It was introduced with some political opposition, but the results speak for themselves. Today, for instance, over 50% of public grid energy in Germany is renewable. Rather impressive for the world's sixth largest consumer. Developing markets will argue that it's only because of its wealth that Germany has been able to reduce its carbon output. Political will, I'd argue, is just as important. The U.S., for instance, is the world's second largest consumer of energy, yet only 12% is renewable. Like I said, political will. Which brings us back to Asia. By all estimations, Asia could lead the transition to renewable if it chose to do so. One country in particular is trying its best. You might think Singapore, such a small and wealthy nation. Seems possible, right? Nowhere near it. Climate Action Tracker, an independent research group that monitors government action, rates Singapore critically insufficient in terms of its climate commitments. So, if not Singapore, who then? 
The answer is Vietnam. Apparently, communist countries get it. Renewable energy is a big part of the current five-year plan. And according to Energy Tracker Asia, Vietnam's solar power capacity has skyrocketed. In 2020, solar rose to 6.3 gigawatts, and that, they say, translates to an annual installation rate of 90 watts per capita, placing the country among global leaders. Go Vietnam. The bad news is that Vietnam's overall energy needs means an increase in fossil fuels as well. You get the picture. No economic progress is possible without energy. How Asian governments will balance the pace of progress with its carbon emission commitments is the biggest question. Introducing carbon trading. This, in and of itself, could prove a major boost for countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, and the Philippines. There's impetus in the COP26 agreement, and as carbon trading rules are established and price thresholds agreed, preserving forests, wetlands, and mangroves at scale could prove a money-making proposition. Ascribe market value to these natural assets, and all of a sudden, developing markets with an ecological bent are in the game. So you see, there is hope. Thanks for joining us here on Inside Asia, and if you haven't checked out our new website, please do so. We're fast approaching 200 episodes, all searchable and covering everything from corporate purpose and sustainability to future tech, future economy, geopolitics, and more. Each episode posting is accompanied by our weekly newsletter, so if you prefer reading to listening, now you can. Our newsletter includes links to other valuable resources and insights, and references to earlier episodes on related topics as well. Over the past four years, we've featured a wide range of regional thought leaders, business heads, and operational insiders. Hear what they have to say by visiting us at www.insideasiapodcast.com. And as always, we thank you for listening.